The following message was recorded at a Warhorn Media event. For more information, please visit warhornmedia.com. And welcome to the Reformation. Good evening, fathers and brothers and mothers and sisters. Tonight I want to say three things that I want you to go home with. Kairos, offense, and relationships. Those are the three things we're going, we're going to talk about tonight. Kairos, offense, relationships. Here's what we're not going to talk about tonight. Sojis. Anyone know what a soji is? It's like an unenthusiastic emoji. You know, it's just soji. <laughs> a soji, there was, some, there was some enthusiastic laughter I heard. So a soji is a sexual orientation gender identity ordinance. Okay? It's to impose restrictions on the abilities of businesses, including religious organizations, churches, not religious nonprofits, to discriminate against sexual orient- on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. We're not going to talk about sojis tonight. We're not going to talk about bathroom policies tonight. We're not going to talk about human wrongs commissions tonight. We're going to talk about kairos, offense and relationships. And if you would please open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have appointed a time for everything. Father, we pray that you would cause us to see and give us strength to carry out your work for us now in the culture, in the community, in law and public policy. We pray that you would give us courage, that we would stand for your truth and for souls who are being attacked in your truth and your character, which is being attacked. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So let's read from Ecclesiastes chapter three, verses one through 10. There is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven, a time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to throw stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to shun embracing, a time to search and a time to give up as lost, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear apart and a time to sew together, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What profit is there to the worker from that in which he toils? I have seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. And to the opposite, the opposing, the contrasting activities that are presented to us in Scripture, we we might add this, a time to retreat into a ghetto, or a time to shun retreating into a ghetto. I believe this is a time to shun retreating into a ghetto. This is the kairos. It is an opportune moment 
It is a window in time within which to do important work. As you know, kairos from the Greek means a significant time, a pregnant moment in time, and it's contrasted with chronos, which means time as it's measured, hour. So kairos is a significant time. And the significant time, the window we see ourselves in now, it's helpful to put it up against where we were in March 2015. Anyone remember what political event, what national political event was taking place in March 2015? And if you're you're from Indiana, RIFRA. What's RIFRA? Religious Freedom Restoration Act. So the Indiana General Assembly in March 2015 passed our state's version of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Other states had these laws on the books. The United States government has the law on the books that protects us from the federal government. The state version was to protect us from state and local government infringement on religious liberty. So the Indiana General Assembly passes this law in March 2015, and Governor Pence signs it. The, and then all hell breaks loose. The West Coast elite represented by Tim Cook and Salesforce, the East Coast elite represented by David Letterman, the Beltway elite represented by, represented by George Stephanopoulos and Fox News, those are, those are the placeholders, gang up on Indiana, gang up on RIFRA, gang up on Governor Pence. And we had in our own backyard here in Indiana, the NCAA headquarters, Angie's List, the Republican mayor of the city of Indianapolis, they all jump into the fray and they start agitating against this law, this Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And they're agitating, we gotta fix this, we gotta fix this, we gotta fix this. And so we have a law that was designed to protect a cake baker from having to bake a cake for a homosexual wedding or a a florist from having to provide flowers for a homosexual wedding. Just think of that as a concrete instance in which that law would have protected religious liberty. But the pressure was on to repeal or soften as much as possible that law. And what, what happened was there was a fix in place that made that law worse than if they had never done anything to begin with. Far worse than if they had never done anything to begin with because of the content of the law and because of how it was defended. It was completely demoralizing. And the, the homosexualists the homosexualist lobby knew they had us. They knew they had Christians, Christian politicians, and and Christian leaders. Now, my point isn't so much to dissect dissect RIFRA now, but I will make a few observations for our ministry. First, the, the bondage to homosexual political correctness was overwhelmingly powerful. It was like the nuclear force that binds particles together in an atom. You, you cannot get off that atomic reservation. You must not. 
or, or you will be pilloried. Another thing to observe is that the Indiana State House was filled with Christians. The State House, where this law was passed and signed. Basement to dome, door to door, Christians. Christian office holders, Christian staff members, Christian legislators, Christian governors. Christians, 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 Christians. Everywhere. And what we saw from the RIFRA debacle, there are a number of things. One, if the shepherd, you strike the shepherd and the sheep are going to scatter. If you are unfaithful in your churches on this issue, the sheep are going to scatter and they're going to be attacked and they're going to be savaged. Another thing that we learned is if you don't count the costs of the battle you are about to fight, you are a fool. You have to count the costs. We saw talented and ambitious Christians who knew very well without having to be told which direction the rainbow flag was blowing in. And they got on board very quickly with the new reality of the homosexualist agenda in Indiana. It was as appalling as it was demoralizing. And so you look at us Christians in that state house and you ask, why were you so faithless? Why were you so feckless? And I'll give you a line from an old anti-drug campaign from the 80s. We learned it by watching you. the church, failing to defend God's truth and doctrine, failing to defend souls from the lies of Satan, from sexual perversion, from sexual bondage over decades. We learned it by watching you. You have to lead your people. You have to lead in the culture. Pastors, elders, deacons, So after the March 2015 RIFRA debacle, the U.S. Supreme Court hands down the Obergefell decision, which overturns any law in the, in the United States that prohibits homosexual marriage. Then in September 2015, the nation beholds the spectacle of a Christian county clerk in Kentucky, Kim Davis, being jailed for contempt because she refused to sign marriage licenses that were going to be handed over to homosexual couples that wanted to marry. And not only did she refuse to sign them, she refused to allow her staff to sign them at first. Okay, so things had gone from horrible to horribler from March 2015 to September 2015. And then something funny happens on the way to the voting booth in 2016. A major party political candidate takes on the ruling class and its sacred cows on behalf of the little guy. Consistent theme throughout that man's campaign, and he wins. Something equally important happens. The ruling class web of politicians, bureaucrats, think tanks, foundations, and journalists are exposed as a selfish cabal of elite opinion enforcers who are downright hostile to middle America. 
the ruling class plots middle Americans along a continuum, continuum of uncouth hick to indentured surf. We fit along that continuum, we here in Indiana and the rest of the Midwest and Middle America. And not not only is it obvious to us, it's obvious to leftist journalists and newspapers across the pond. So let's, let's see this quote from The Guardian. This is a British leftist paper. They're observing the aftermath of the Wikipedia scandal and the leaks of the, the Podesta emails. Here's what he says. They are, comfortable and well-edu- they are the comfortable and well-educated mainstay of our modern Democratic Party. They are also the grandees of our national media, the architects of our software, the designers of our streets, the high officials of our banking system, the authors of just about every plan to fix Social Security or fine-tune the Middle East with precision droning. They are, they think, not a class at all, but rather the enlightened ones, the people who must be answered to, but who never, who need never explain themselves. And then skipping down. Everything blurs into everything else in this world. The State Department, the banks, Silicon Valley, the nonprofits, the global CEO advisory firm that appears to have solicited donations for the Clinton Foundation. Executives here go from foundation to government to think tank to startup. There are honors, venture capital, foundation grants, endowed chairs, advanced degrees. For them, the door revolves. The friends all succeed. They break every boundary. And so then something amazing happens just after this column is written, just a few days later. So Trump wins. Things flip. God has flipped things. There are two benefits from this, this window we've been presented. First, the accelerated suppression of the Christian conscience through the presidential bully pulpit and the vast armada of federal agencies is on a hiatus. It's on hiatus. There's a, a pause in the aggression. The question now is whether Trump is going to continue Obama's executive order and policies that benefit and favor homosexuals, but there's a pause in the advance, okay? Second, the major news media's conceit of authoritative respectability received a long overdue rebuke from the electorate, from the little guy, from the middle American. They've been stunned and chastened and can no longer plausibly deny their feverish zeal in favor of the ruling class and PC-dom, political correctness. If you'd like a concise accounting, I recommend a former CBS reporter, Cheryl Atkinson. She had a post called Newsgate 2016, and she read through all the emails and just posted Associated Press, PBS, CBS, New York Times, Washington Post, reporters colluding with the Clinton campaign. So for a few days after the election, there was some soul-searching among the media, but no discernible repentance. And here's how one CBS reporter described it a couple of days afterward. And please listen carefully to this. It's, it's kind of long, but please listen carefully. The mood in the Washington press corps is bleak and deservedly so. It shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone that with a few exceptions, we were all tacitly or explicitly with her, which has led to a certain anguish in the face of Donald Trump's victory. More than that, and more importantly, we also missed the story after having spent months mocking the people who had a better sense of what was going on. 
This is all symptomatic of modern journalism's great moral and intellectual failing, its unbearable smugness. Had Hillary Clinton won, there'd be a winking, we did it, feeling in the press, a sense that we were brave and called Trump a liar and saved the republic. So much for that. The audience for our glib analysis and contempt for much of the electorate, it turned out, was rather limited. This was particularly true when it came to voters, the the ones who turned out by the millions to deliver not only a rebuke to the political system, but also the people who cover it. Trump knew what he was doing when he invited his crowds to jeer and hiss the reporters covering him. They hate us and have for some time, and can you blame them? Journalists love mocking Trump supporters. We insult their appearances. We dismiss them as racist and sexist. We emote on Twitter about how this or that comment or policy makes us feel one way or the other, and yet we reject their feelings as invalid. It's a profound failure of empathy in the service of endless posturing, which that's the media. That one sentence subs up the American media. There's been some sympathy from the press, sure, The dispatches from heroin country that read like reports from colonial administrators checking in on the natives. But much of that starts from the assumption that Trump voters are backward and that it's our duty to catalog and ultimately reverse that backwardness. What can we do to get these people to stop worshiping their their false god and accept our gospel? Now, Trump's not the false god the people are worshiping. What, what they're doing is they're attacking the Christian conscience. That's what he's doing. And he's, he's alighting us, he's associating us with Trump, but he's attacking God the Father. We diagnose them as racist in, in the way dark age clerics confused medical problems with demonic possession. Journalists, at our worst, we see ourselves as a priestly caste. We believe we not only have access to the indisputable facts, but also have a greater truth, a system of beliefs divined from an advanced understanding of justice. You'd think that Trump's victory, the one we all discounted too far in advance, would lead to a certain newfound humility in the political press. But of course, that's not how it works. To us speaking broadly, our diagnosis was still basically correct. The demons were just stronger than we realized. That the demons being us and what's motivating us as Christians. And so from this, I'm not carrying a brief for Donald Trump and his campaign, but what I'm saying is there's a window open. I've been observing the media and the political media for a good four years now, and something's different. Something different's happening with them. They're reeling. They're on their knees from declining circulation and ad revenue to their electoral humiliation, the giant is wounded and its grip on the opinion enforcement apparatus has slipped. They're also reeling from the president and his contempt for their etiquette and politics. He isn't playing by their rules or respecting their eminence, and he identifies as pro-life, so they're furiously trying to topple him. So why is this important? Because the major media are not controlling the conversation in the way they were two years ago. According to, a Gallup, according to Gallup, only 32% of Americans trust the media, which is an all-time low. The demons are strong, and their strategy is made to order for destroying souls in bondage to sexual perversion, gagging the Christian conscience, and attacking God's created order, which I think that's what they always do. There's just a different issue every 50 to 100 years. It's a trifecta. 
You destroy souls, you gag the Christian, you attack God's character and his word. The phrase, not that there's anything wrong with that, is the genuflection to these demons. And you and I are part of this, what I'm gonna call tonight, the post-totalitarian system. That is, we are of the world at the point of our faithlessness on sexuality. Because the demonic enforcers of this system are so absolutely monolithically rigid, I think it's helpful and I've been strengthened by studying Soviet-era dissidents. Especially their ability to decode language, expose thought control, and break free from systemic lies. Which that, that's the ball game when it comes to government and policy and politics on sexuality. It's lies, it's thought control, and it's all, all systemic. Here's an, an observation from Vaclav Havel written in the late 1970s on the post-totalitarian experience of the country formerly known as Czechoslovakia. Now he calls it post-totalitarian because there's no dictator who's enforcing everything over a small area by uh, physical force and coercion. There are too many people, it's too broad of an area within the, the Soviet satellite system to control everybody all the time. So you gotta have a system in place. You have to have a, an ideology in place to make sure everyone stays on the reservation. Here's what he says. The post-totalitarian system touches people at every step, but it does so with its ideological gloves on. This is, this is the, the PC world with their velvet gloves on as they handle us. This is why life in the system is so thoroughly permeated with hypocrisy and lies. Government by bureaucracy is called popular government. The working class is enslaved in the name of the working class. The complete degradation of the individual is presented as his ultimate liberation. I mean, what's Sex, exactly. You have a right under our Constitution, according to our Supreme Court, to engage in pornography and to engage in sodomy, to commit adultery, to marry as a homosexual. You have all of those rights, and that's supposed to be your liberation, but it's, it's our bondage. Depriving people of information is called making it available. This is, if you want to Google modified limited hangout and just read about that propaganda technique. That's a good one from the Nixon era. The use of power to manipulate is called the public control of power and the arbitrary abuse of power is called observing the legal code. The repression of culture is called its development the expansion of imperial influence is presented as support for the oppressed. The lack of free expression becomes the highest form of freedom. And think about all the college campus protests. Farcical elections become the highest form of democracy. You should be laughing right now. We just went through this. Banning independent thought becomes the most scientific of worldviews, climate change. Now let's, let's go down to the paragraph that begins individuals. Individuals need not believe all these mystifications, but they must behave as though they did. This is where we come in. We don't buy this. We don't buy the the homosexual propaganda, but we believe as if we did when we're out. 
in our workplaces and dealing with our families and in the culture. We act like we believe this. Individuals need not believe all these mystifications, but they must behave as though they did, or they must at least tolerate them in silence or get along well with those who work with them. For this reason, however, they must live within a lie. They need not accept the lie. It is enough for them to have accepted their life with it and in it. For by this very fact, individuals confirm the system, fulfill the system, make the system, are the system. And this gets back to a point earlier, I can't remember which Pastor Bailey said it, but I'll say Pastor Bailey was making the point about general principles and concepts and particulars. And we can't escape, we can't escape the particular when we're talking about the general. The general applies to the particular. We are the system. This is us. We don't genuflect. We don't dip our finger in the holy water and make the sign of the PC on ourselves. But we're almost always silent. And this begins in our families, in our churches, out in the community, in our workplaces, for those who are, who are in our, our churches, in our pews. But the kairos for preaching and teaching God's truth of sexuality out of love for perishing souls is now. That's not to say we shouldn't have been doing this already. We should have been. And there are men and women who have been more or less faithful in this work and we need to pick up their work and help them carry this burden. God in his kindness, I believe, is opening a wider door temporarily for that work despite our past unfaithfulness. Now, when I first wrote the sentence, I started to say the kairos for the defense of God's truth. But whatever this work is to be that we're doing in the culture, it cannot be defensive. Was it Chesterton that said, defend God's word, I'd sooner defend a lion? Spurgeon. Spurgeon or Chesterton. I knew it was someone from the UK. You've heard it said that the only godly offense is a defense, but I tell you the best defense is a good offense. And we've been on defense. We've been shrinking back into the ghetto where we keep our private Christian truth within the church and within the home. And we our game plan is we're going to win with defense. And ima- imagine Bill Belichick addressing his team before the Super Bowl. There's Tom Brady sitting on the bench, and here's what he says. Okay, all right. Tim, I need you to intercept the ball twice and run it back for a touchdown each time. Got it? Lucas, you need to strip the ball from the quarterback twice. And then, Jared, you need to run it back for a touchdown twice. Okay, that's 28 points right there. And then, Paul, we need three safeties from you. And Tim, we need two safeties from you. That's 38 points. We got this thing. Okay? All right? Hopeless on three. One, two, three. Hopeless. It's hopeless. We can't be defensive. We have to be on offense. The best defense is a good offense. So what does the offense look like? It, it doesn't look like setting up fortifications to protect us from for future persecution, which is what we advert to. We think only about, oh, we gotta get those bylaws, 
right. We gotta get those policies and those bylaws. We have to be ready for the, the imposition of the sexual orientation gender identity ordinance. And we gotta be ready for that. We gotta be on defense. This is, this is our posture to the world. It's defensive. And so we, we look at we look at Obergefell and we're, we read that opinion and, and they have a triple parallel in that opinion. It's something equals something equals something and just guess what those three things are. The end is homophobia. Yes, so racism equals sexism equals homophobia. And we're, we're instantly defensive because we've been faithless in the area of manhood and womanhood. So they get us there, and we're already goners on homosexuality because we're, we're backpedaling on being called sexist. And we forget, wait a minute, there's a, a triple parallel in Scripture that's very helpful here. It comes from Leviticus. What's the triple parallel from Leviticus? Something equals homosexuality. So bestiality equals... Incest equals homosexuality. Leviticus 18 describes those sins in parallel terms. And so we've let the Supreme Court lie to us. We've let the political system lie to us about manhood and womanhood, and now we're letting them lie to us about homosexuality, and we're getting into a defensive crouch because we're backpedaling. So don't let them frighten you with the mudslinging. You have to be faithful on manhood and womanhood, including sexuality. If you're not, you're dead in the water. Don't let them cow you with charges of chauvinism so that you end up calling yourself a complementarian just to try to thread the needle. Going offensive means using your relationships. It means using your gifts, your personality, your circumstances, your regional, local situation, whatever that is. In addition to the love of the congregation for my wife and me, the prophetic preaching and teaching ministry of Clearnote woke me up, woke up the sleeper, and keeps prodding me to keep me alert. It's, it's constant, and we need our shepherds to do that, to the sheep, with our sheep, to one another. So our, our offense can't come in the form of mere blog posts or tweets dispensed from the comfort of our easy chair. We have to do the hard work of cataloging our relationships and putting them to use, spending the relationship capital that we have in some offensive effort to advance God's truth and his kingdom. And obviously we do that from the pulpit, preaching God's word, but it doesn't end on Sunday mornings. We have to be willing to spend some of the capital God has given us relationally. The world, the devil, and our own evil hearts have constructed this system for us to be polite and never rock the boat because we think that's, that's wrong. It's wrong to rock the boat. It's not wrong to speak truth to power when that truth is Jesus' truth. So butt in and, and say the thing that's going to embarrass you and spend the relationship capital that you have with all the people that are around you. You know why? 
because they're going to have something happen that day that is as exciting as anything that's gonna have happened that month or maybe even that year. They're going to be shocked out of their drudgery and they're gonna be confronted with truth. And it's fresh. And it spurs, it, it, it grows your faith. As you're doing the work, it grows your faith. And you think that someone was, who said the word long and arduous? Was that you, Joseph, in battling sin? This is actually something that gets easier as soon as you get over the hill of opening your mouth. As soon as you open your mouth, you're downhill and you're just coasting because God is giving you power and he's giving you words and he's giving you thoughts. But you have to rely on him and you can't fear man. You have to fear God. I was going to end by reading Calvin's exhortation on his deathbed to the Genevan Senate, but I won't because I left it in my bag. <laughs> but I'll par- and it's late and I'll paraphrase it. Uh, thanks. I won't read all of the green tabs, but you see these green tabs? So this is, this is the biography by Theodore Beza, or Beza? Beza, 100 pages. And the green, ta- green tags are just the places I found quickly where it said, and in that year there was a big controversy. And in that year there was, there was much conflict. And in that year there was a lot of battle. Oh, and there were two years where it was really tranquil, but then the next year made up for it and it's ferocious conflict. It's just like he's chronicling year after year of Calvin's life. And not, not only Calvin's ministry in the church, but Calvin's ministry in defense of the republic, his love for the republic. And so we get to the end of his life and he actually wants to spend his dying days with politicians. Think about how much capital, how much he's invested to be able to do this. And now you're thinking, well, I don't know any senators. You do have civil magistrates in your church. We can start there, right? You have policemen, lawyers, professors, you, you have men in authority in the community, in your church, who bear responsibility in the community. So here's what he says. Honored lords, I thank you exceedingly for having conferred so many honors on one who plainly deserved nothing of the kind and for having so often borne patiently with my very numerous infirmities. That's pretty sweet. He's confessing his weakness. He's dying, he's confessing his weakness. This I have always regarded as the strongest proof of your singular goodwill toward me. And though in the discharge of my duty I have had various battles to fight and various insults to endure, because to these every man, even the most excellent, must be subjected. If Jesus could be attacked, we're not any better than our master. No servant is greater than his master. And here's Calvin. He's not any greater than his master, Jesus. 
every man, even the most excellent, must be subjected. I know and acknowledge that none of these things happen through your fault, and I earnestly entreat you that if anything I have not done as I ought, you will attribute it to the one of ability rather than of will. For I can truly declare that I have sincerely studied the interest of your republic. Though I have not discharged my duty fully, I have always to the best of my ability consulted for the public good. And I did not acknowledge, and did I not acknowledge that the Lord on his part has sometimes made my labors profitable, I should lay myself open to a charge of dissimulation. He's, gonna, he's saying, if I didn't praise God for the fruit of it, I would be lying, the fruit of his ministry for Jesus. And so he, I'm gonna skip down to this last part here. And he starts, he knows these people. He knows these men. He says, worship him therefore according to his precepts and study this more and more for we are always very far from doing what it is our duty to do. I know the disposition and character of each of you and I know that you need exhortation. I know who you guys are. I know you need exhortation. Even among those who excel, there is not one who is not deficient in many things. Let everyone examine himself, and wherein he sees himself to be defective, let him ask of the Lord. We see how much iniquity prevails in the counsels of this world. Some are cold, others, negligent of the public good, give their whole attention to their own affairs. Others indulge their own private affections. Others use not the excellent gifts of God as his meat, as his proper. Others ostentatiously display themselves and from overweening confidence insist that all their opinions shall be approved by others. That's, that sounds like a political body to me. Just about anywhere. That's the city council of Cincinnati, of Bloomington. And he knew these men. He took time they may have been, some of them I'm sure were in, in his church. And so you're thinking, well, that was Calvin and that was Geneva and they were Christians and it was a Christian republic and I can't do that here. 72% of Americans claim that they're Christians. And our, our offense needs to be reaching out and developing relationships with the civil magistrate and speaking truth to power. And we need to think about how we do that and we need to do that work. So the three points, what are they? Kairos, offense and relationships. We have to use our relationships and use our capital. And we cannot do what the pastors here have been warning us not to do for years, and that is preserve our influence, protect our influence for the next, you know, when we have more influence, and then we can really bust loose, because it, it won't happen. Today is the day. Now's the time for obedience. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks and praise that you've not left us in chaos and disorder and confusion that you have given us the civil magistrate to protect us, to punish the evil and to reward the good. We pray that you would cause us to be faithful in calling them to obedience to you and to the fear and love of you. 
We pray, Father, that we would be faithful in recognizing the signs of the times and that we would not shrink back from declaring all that is profitable, that we would love souls, and that we would love you with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind and our neighbor as ourselves. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.